You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. This week, uh, I had every intent to spend last week in Psalm 1 and this week in Psalm 2, so that we'd be all set up for Corey in Psalm 3. But this uh, Psalm 1 just doesn't work that way. There's too much. It's too good. And so we split it up. We're doing uh, the second half of uh, Psalm 1 this week. And if we're going to do that, um, you will need your Bible, and I will need my Bible. So why don't you go ahead and pull your Bible out while I grab mine. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, There is one in the pew in front of you. We want you to grab that, uh, open it up. We want you to have God's word open on your lap. Um, I have nothing of value for you. Um, It's all about God's word. That's uh, that's all we have together. And so we want to look together at God's word. Psalm chapter 1. Get that open so you can follow along. Um, And uh, before we go to the Psalms, uh, a book of poetry, um, I want to start with another poem that you may recognize. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair and having perhaps a better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh some ages and ages hence, to roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference." The Road Less Traveled, Robert Frost, probably one of the best-known poems in our day. and Beautiful poem, uh, has that nostalgic sense, that air to it. But uh, more than that, I think it, it touches on this universal experience, right? These two roads diverging, and, uh, and we can only choose one. Standing at that, that fork, that point of decision, looking down two separate paths, not knowing where they lead, what the end will be, what the journey will be. In Frost's case, uh, he sees it, at least in his perspective, as a happy dilemma. Which one is better? I wish I could take both. I can only take one. But we know that's not always the case. Um, often one of those roads leads to pain and hardship. Um, and, and so we, uh, we struggle and wrestle. It's a, it's a difficult situation often, not knowing what lies around that bend, what is down that road. And, uh, and it makes these decisions agonizing. But what if you could know? What if there was a road sign at the fork saying, this is what lies ahead down this road and this is what lies ahead down here? What if you had a a map that you could open up or an experienced traveler that could show you, tell you what what to expect? That's what we find in Psalm 1. We find these two paths diverging, two roads leading off in different directions. And rather than this kind of nostalgic wondering about what's down this path or what's down that path, we may never know, um, what we have is uh, information, education, 
There's these road signs for us to read, to hear um, not only from an experienced traveler, uh, but from the one who made the roads, saying, this is what lies ahead. Two very different roads diverging, uh, two very clear road signs. Uh, and so that question stands in front of us, which road will you take? Which way will you go? Um, so let me read Psalm 1, and, uh, and then we'll work our way through it. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2. Um, this week we'll go uh, verses 3 to 6. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for clarity on things that we do not know in ourselves. Thank you for your revelation of who you are and what you have called us to. God, would you open our eyes this morning as we look at at your truth God, would you open our closed ears? Would you soften our hard hearts? Would you speak um, and and transform us more to the image of Christ? God, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at this first road here in Psalm 1, verse Three, we see the path of righteousness. This is, this is it. This is the, the path of the righteous. Now, now, last week we talked about this righteous man, and uh, we see him in verses 1 and 2. He is the, the blessed man. It's one and the same. He removes himself from the, the priorities, the value system of this world. He doesn't buy into it. He stepped back from that. He's delighting in the law of the Lord. That's his joy. And he's, he's living in the law of the Lord. He's meditating on it day and night. He's chewing it over. He's, he's letting that guide him. And that man, that person, the person on that path, um, the Lord says, will be blessed. He will have joy. He will have happiness. It's going to go well for him. He's going to have satisfaction in the Lord. Verse 3 then shows us kind of where this is going, gives us a bit of a, a longer perspective on it. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. The image of a tree is a picture of strength. A tree is stable, it's solid, it's, it's immovable. And notice this is not a wild tree or an unwanted tree or a coincidental tree. Um, this is a tree that is planted. This is the Lord's tree and it is placed there intentionally. And it's planted by streams of water. The climate in Israel is mostly dry, um, prone to drought. And and it's a difficult place for a tree to grow strong and and healthy um, if it's depending on the sparse and inconsistent rainfall. But a tree planted by streams of water, water that flows year-round, that will flourish. It's not affected by the the ebbs and flows of the weather. It's not dependent on that. It has its own source, a constant source of life and nutrients. And this tree has two notable characteristics that follow after. First, it yields its fruit in season. And secondly, its leaf 
never withers. This is what awaits down that path of the righteous. The person who, who pulls themselves back from uh, the thinking of this world, who, who doesn't go along with the, the, the way of the wicked, who's not sitting in the, the seat of the scoffer, but goes the other way, trusts the Lord, follows him, digs into his word, believes him, lives accordingly. That person is like a tree planted. And what are the streams of water he's talking about? It's God's word. This life-giving stream, the, the things of this world that we seek after, we try to find our, our joy in and our, our pleasure, our satisfaction in, oh, they're so inconsistent. They come and go so quickly. The life, the, the joy, the satisfaction that those things offer, it's so fleeting. You won't thrive on that. The word of God. The word of God is like this ever-flowing river, consistent, filled with, with life. Remember Jesus' words. He's talking to the, the woman at the well in John 4. We learn that this woman had had five husbands, none of them satisfied. Five different relationships Every one of them ended in pain and loss. Each time you can just see this poor woman thinking, this time it'll be different. This relationship will satisfy. This man is better. This time it's going to work out. This is what's going to satisfy my soul. This is what will make me whole. And each time ends up as empty as the last. Listen carefully what Jesus says to her. Verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, Jesus isn't talking about H2O here, right? He's using the well as this example, but, but that's not what he's talking about. He's telling you, you've, you've been looking in all the wrong places. You're drawing water from these different wells and trying to find life, and it's not working. You'll just get thirsty again. As long as you go chasing after the things of this world, as long as the root system of your life is, is dug into worldly things, it, it might satisfy for a season. It might seem exciting for a time, but, but it will end. It won't satisfy. But in Him, in the Lord, there's this ever-flowing river. There's this abundance of life that will well up in you to, to eternal life. Connected to him, drawing our life from him, we're like this, this tree um, that has this life source that's unshakable, untouchable. And we bear fruit. We bear fruit. Our life produces good things. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of love for God and love for others. The fruit of sharing this good news of the, the path of, of joy. This tree bears fruit in season and its leaf never withers. It's always green. It's always alive. As Spurgeon would say, all of God's trees are evergreen. Through the winter, through the drought, through trials and hardship, pain, frustration, the life of this tree isn't threatened. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love that picture, my, my portion forever. Maybe it's just because I like food too much, but, but that makes sense to me, right? Like he's it. 
Jesus is my, my heaping plate full. He's all that I need. That's what's going to sustain me. That's what's going to give me strength and energy. That's what's going to satisfy me. No matter what else happens, he's it. He is my full and abundant portion. If I have him, I have enough. And that leads to the, the last comment here. Um, the end of verse 3 gives, gives up on the tree metaphor, and he just says, hey, all he does prospers. That's a big claim. All he does prospers. Like you should have started there. That's huge. That's too good to be true. Now, I think there's a good general principle that we can pull from that. Right? The Lord is wise. He's created this world. He's created human relationships and families and, and all of that. He is, he's all-knowing and all-wise. And if you follow his law, it's going to work better. It's just the better way to go. Generally speaking, God's commands are wise, and it will go better for you if you walk in them. But I think we can go deeper than that. I think there's a, a promise here that we can hold on to, um, provided we understand it properly. There's a danger here of, of taking this and, and understanding it kind of in a, a prosperity theology way. So prosperity theology would say, boy, if you love God, if you have enough faith, um, everything's going to go great for you. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to have a, a good paying job. You're going to be successful and make lots of money. And you're going to have a, a nice car and a nice house and, a, and, and, and prosper financially because God will bless you. And that's what God's blessing looks like. The problem is, just look back at verse 1 for a second. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's the, the blessed man who, who doesn't define himself by the, the standards and the, and the value system of this world. So why then would we assume that God's blessings are defined by the standards and value systems of this world? It just doesn't make sense. I mean, if, if God had come out and said, um, blessed is the man who walks away from sugar, right? Boy, that would go over on Facebook. Um, blessed is the man who turns his back on sugar altogether. We wouldn't expect then that God's blessings would be like pop and, and, and chocolate bars. It doesn't make sense. Now, the blessed man is the man who's not in love with money, who's not enamored by the things of this world. He's not... Seeking after worldly success, where's his heart at? His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's where he's at. The blessed man prospers in all that he does, but, but how is that prosperity measured? Is it measured in health and wealth and happiness? No. It's not measured in prosperity financially. Our worldly standards of wealth and power and luxury... That's not the categories that we're looking at. His prosperity is a prosperity of his soul. The carnal mind, the mind that's conformed to the standards of this world that is kind of still stuck in this uh, earthly value system, yeah, you're going to hear that and say, well, that's not real prosperity. That's kind of a disappointment, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of a weak interpretation. What about the money? What about luxury? Doesn't God bless with that? Those who love the Lord, those who value what he values, those who, who look at this life from the, an eternal perspective, this is what they long for. They, they're delighting in him, and, and, and for them, this promise is 100% rock-solid, guaranteed God's blessing. All he does, he prospers. 
and the prosperity of his soul. This is uh, Romans 8, 28 at work. Why don't you turn over there to Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend a little time there. Most of it won't be up on the screen. Um, Flip over to Romans 8. Um, Such a rich, beautiful passage. 8.28, Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. You see the, the parallel with Psalm 1. In all He does, He prospers. All things work together for His good. But what does that good look like? Does it mean... Boy, if I get fired from my job, God's going to work that for my good. And that means I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to get a higher paying job because, because God works all things for good. I crashed my car, but, but it's okay. God works all things for good. That means I'm going to get a nicer car. If I trusted God, if I really follow him and obey him, if I have enough faith, I'm not going to get sick. My spouse won't get sick. My kids are going to be healthy and obedient little angels. Uh, I won't have marital strife. My life is going to be easy by worldly standards. Because God works all things for good, right? Well, no. No, not if we're defining good by by these worldly standards. Look back at, at Romans 8. Paul tells us what he means by that good, what kind of good. So verse 28 says he works all things for good. And look at verses 29 and 30. For, so because, here's how we know God is working all things for good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's just unpack that a little bit. We know for sure that God is working all things for good. For those who love him. For those who are called according to his purposes. Why? Well, because those whom he calls are called and predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. They're not called and predestined to to wealth and fame. They're called and predestined to the image of Christ. To be shaped and formed into holiness. The good that God is working in every situation in your life is the good of sanctification, the progressive growing in holiness in the image of Christ, learning to trust him more, learning to to love him more, learning to walk more in obedience, to root out sinful habits in our lives, to grow in him, to be shaped and formed to the image of Christ. And we know that process, that, that conforming process will be successful because Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's a one-to-one-to-one-to-one ratio here. From start to finish, God finishes what he starts. We will be finally completely saved. So sanctification is this ongoing process of, of growing in holiness. Glorification is the moment that we die or Jesus comes back and we are made completely holy. That process is finished in us and we are brought into the presence of the Lord. So if you're called by God, if you are His child, everything in your life is working along that path. Down the road of sanctification toward the end goal of glorification. That's where we're going. And it's good. 
It's very good. It's, it's more good than, than any worldly thing. Right? First, first Peter 1 talks about uh, the, the, the tested, oh man, the tested genuineness of your faith that is more valuable than gold. Right? It's better. So God will not bring or allow one single thing into your life that is not working in you toward that good, toward our ultimate salvation. And in the end, um, really that's the exact opposite of the prosperity thinking. God's goodness toward us is not that we would love the world more, that we would have our hearts more wrapped up and entangled with, with earthly things, but that we would love it less. That we would be more anchored in Him and less anchored in this world. More focused on His eternal glory. To know Him more, to love Him more, to trust Him more. To put our roots down even deeper into that flowing river. To be less dependent on the coming and going things of this world and more dependent on Him. That's what He's working. Sometimes that's painful. Sometimes that's frustrating. Sometimes that's really hard to see. God, what are you doing? How is this good? And he says, trust me. I'm working in it. I'm forming you to the image of Christ. I'm bringing you through to glory. I'm purifying your faith. If you're a believer in this morning, um, you need to hold on to that. You need to cling to that. This promise from Psalm 1, from Romans 8, if you're on that path of trusting in the Lord, loving his word, striving to to, to live in it, this is you. This is a promise for you. If you're not a believer, if you're, if you're not one who's, who's pushing away the things of the world and seeking after Jesus, I'm sorry, this promise just isn't for you. You, you can't say this. You have no ground to stand on to say, God's working everything for my good. That, that's, that's not about you. This is about those who, who are called according to his purpose. You're a tree whose roots are now attached. Whether you feel that at the moment or not, your roots are now attached to that flowing river of God who will bear fruit in season and your leaf will not wither. He will sustain you. You can be confident in every situation. God is on my side. This is happening for my good in some way. I need to trust him. Again, that doesn't mean it's easy. That comes with trials and frustration, with doubt and, and wrestling. But it is the path of righteousness. This is the, the path of the, the prospering of the soul. Now let's, let's check out the other path, verses 4 and 5, uh, back in Psalm 1. This is the path of the wicked. This is what the wicked can expect down their road. Look at verses 4 and 5. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So this second row, the, the other option, it's drastically different. So the, the, the most basic description of the path of the wicked is that it is completely unlike the path of the righteous. Everything that was just said about the, the path of the righteous, that firmly planted tree producing fruit, its leaf never withers, everything he does prospers, is, is categorically untrue of the path of the wicked. They're not firmly planted. They don't produce good fruit. Their leaf is constantly 
withering. They never prosper. It's not so. Not so. They are not like the tree planted and secure. They are like chaff. Chaff that the wind blows away. The chaff is, a, is an agricultural term. Um, if you take a handful of grain or barley or oats or whatever you've got, um, the, the seed on the inside is the, is the, the desirable part. That's what we're going to take and make into, into flour to eat, to use. Um, but it's wrapped in this dry husk, this, this shell that protects it. So if you take that handful from the field and you, and you rub it in your hands, the chaff is going to break off and, and crumble. And so what the farmers would do in that day um, is they would, they would pile up their grain on the called the threshing floor and they would just beat it and smack it and rough it up and break it down. And, and then they would take what is called a winnowing fork, like a, like a pitchfork, and they would throw it into the air. And the, and the breeze would carry the chaff away, all the broken shells, all the, the garbage would get blown away in the wind and the seed, which is heavy, would fall down again. And so they would separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is dust. It's, it's waste. The, the wind carries it away and it's gone. It's the perfect example of that which is just utterly useless. It's, it's unrecoverable. There's no value to it. And, and it's also so temporary. Once it blows away, um, where does it go? Who's going to recover it? It's gone. Once again, if we're, we're measuring by worldly standards, this, this metaphor calls us to see it through the eyes of faith, right? Worldly standards, we're looking at this uh, at face value, and, and we think this just doesn't seem to be the case, right? Like unbelievers, people who don't care one lick about God, they do well. They do well in this world. If you just kind of peruse through the list of the, the world's richest people, um, you're going to find a bunch of atheists and agnostics, a couple people who, who make these vague statements of how their faith is really important to them or religion is, a, is an important thing, but their, their life doesn't show a lot of fruit of a, of a deep, vibrant faith. And yet there they are, like top of the world, billions of dollars, massive enterprises. How can we say these people are like chaff? So let's, let's just grab one example. Um, I got to admit, I, I, I'm a bit of an Elon Musk fan. I love getting my kids together, and he's, like, launching rockets to Mars. Guys, let's watch. This is really cool. What would it be like? Maybe, maybe you can go to Mars when you, when you, for, your, for your job. Maybe you should train for that. He's, he's, he's crazy, but, but in the best kind of way. He's, he's, he's off his rocker and making these huge advancements in, in space travel. And then there's Tesla. Then there's the boring company making tunnels under the road, solving traffic problems. There's Neuralink. He's like interfacing the human brain directly with computers. Uh, he's a, a company called OpenAI that's going to save us from like a Terminator 2 kind of scenario so that the AI doesn't go crazy. Um, Starlink Internet. He's cross-hatching like the entire world with satellites to do Internet everywhere. Um, I think Elon Musk has done more for the, the technological advancement of our of our world than anyone else in the last century, and, and probably that by double. And for that, he is the second and probably soon to be the first richest man in the world. Uh, he's closing in on 200 
billion dollars. I don't know if he would physically be able to spend it in his lifetime. Like, and, and he's an atheist. He's not a godly man. He's not a righteous man by any definition of the term. Can we really say he's like chaff? Like Elon Musk is a person of no consequence. I don't know. He's going to make the history books. Um, he could buy anything he wanted. He has a, he's a bigger annual income than most countries in the world. And Psalms wrestle with that. Crying out. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do evil men do so well in this world? God, where's your justice? You, you said the wicked are like chaff, but, but that's not what I'm seeing down here. Why do these people flourish? We see this in a smaller scale in our own lives, right? Up close and personal. We've all had times in our lives the, the dishonest, lazy, cheating coworker gets the promotion, gets the raise, gets the accolades that we get passed over for. People you know that are not dealing fairly, that are not being honest, that are not, not kind and, and loving people, and yet they seem to do so well in life. They get ahead. And not only do they flourish in, in business, they don't have any financial concerns, but his wife didn't get cancer. He didn't get sick. Why, why, why doesn't he have any of the catastrophes that I have? Why do I have all of these horrible things going on? I look over there and this wicked man is living this great life with this happy, healthy family and all his income. God, what are you doing? What's the point of being righteous? What's the point of following you, God, if this is the way it's going to go? Remember last week I said the Psalms become our prayer book. The Psalms ask some of those hard questions that we wrestle with. Maybe we're even nervous to ask. Turn over to Psalm 73. I want you to see this in your Bible. It's not going to be on the screen again. Uh, Psalm 73. If you're already in Psalm 1, you just got to count your way over. Such a powerful psalm, wrestling with this very question. It's written by a man named Asaph. And he, he starts with his foundation, with what he knows to be true. Probably read Psalm 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He makes that statement. He wants to believe it, but now he wrestles. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw their prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out of fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. And speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's wrestling. God, I just see these wicked people and they're doing great. They don't have any of the trials that I have. They're not suffering. They're fat and healthy. And they're mocking God. Does God even know? Does God even see? And Asaph feels like it's pointless. Like it's in vain that I try to live a righteous life. What good is it? What difference does it make? And the whole psalm pivots on these next two verses, verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Once he looked again with the eyes of faith, once he put himself back into the presence of the Lord, fixed his eyes again on God, then it all begins to make sense. Then he begins to see from, from God's perspective. In verse 8, he begins to resolve this tension. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, I was like, um, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He looks through the eyes of faith. He brings himself again into the presence of the Lord and considers this with an eternal perspective. And everything begins to come clear. Their, their success, their comfort, their luxury, everything that seems to be going well for them, it will end in a second. It will be taken away. It will all come crashing down. Yeah, they're, they're standing now, but they're standing in a slippery place. And he begins to be reminded again, yeah, I was, I was envious of all the things that they have, but, but my true desire is the Lord. It's he who guards me and he holds my hand and he will bring me through to glory. There's nothing in heaven that I desire besides him. He will be my strength and my portion forever. They will not stand in the judgment. That's what Psalm 1 is saying. It's looking forward. They may stand now, but they won't stand then. John the Baptist, uh, talking about Jesus, um, uses this metaphor of the chaff. And that's the context of judgment. He says in Matthew 3.12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire that's where this is going when the judgment comes we all stand before Jesus as our judge what then will be of Elon Musk what will his numerous companies matter what will 200 billion dollars mean in in that moment what benefit 
It will be burned up. And he will be burned up. What about 10,000 years from now when when Christ has has long come and yet we have just barely scratched the surface of of eternity? Do you think anyone's going to care about an electric car? Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are not going to be traffic jams in heaven. There's no need for tunnels. I don't know what the internet situation is going to be, but we won't need satellites to do it. It'll be worthless. Everything he's worked for will be completely inconsequential and forgotten. The wicked may seem to prosper around us, but when the judgment comes, they will not stand. They will not come through. Matthew 25, 41 says this of of Jesus, Jesus says this of himself in the day of judgment, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. All of a sudden we switch from, from having cried out, God, where are you? Why do the wicked succeed? Why do they continue to prosper? God, this isn't fair. And we see it from the other side and we go, oh, that's heavy. Lord, is that too much? I mean, I feel bad for them. But that's the Lord's perfect judgment. And since they will not stand in the judgment, Psalm 1 goes on to say they will not be present in the congregation of the righteous. Um, Today, in this world, um, the church is a place of mixed company. As we gather together, um, it's not pure. In the words of Jesus, there are tares or weeds mixed in among the wheat. There is impurity mixed in amongst the gold. There are goats gathered together with the sheep. The church is not pure, not yet. But in that day, after the judgment, the the congregation of the righteous, the gathering of the saints will be perfect, will be the the absolute brotherhood, the deepest bond of, of unity and love, perfect harmony in the fellowship of the saints. Specifically because, as Revelation 21, 27 says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It will be perfect unity, perfect fellowship, precisely because the unrighteous will not be present. That's a, a glorious thing that the believers look forward to with, with hope and joy, but a fearful warning for those who walk the path of the righteous. You won't be there. That won't be for you. They will not be blessed with this gathering of the saints into eternity. Their path leads to a very different end. God's warnings are clear and frequent. If you walk in the counsel of the wicked, if you stand in the way of sinners, if you sit in the seat of scoffers, if you'll listen to the, the wisdom of this world and let your mind be shaped and your heart be in, entangled with those things, if you seek after your joy and your, your satisfaction, your identity in the things of this world, rather than the Lord, in the end it will all be like chaff. You will be like chaff. The wrath of God will carry you away and your final de- destination will be the endless judgment of the Lord. That's the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And then verse 6 gives us the point of divergence. The point of divergence. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. So unlike Robert Frost's poem, these roads are not unknown. There's not some great mystery of what lies ahead. They are clearly marked. But like Frost's poem, there are only two roads. There is option A and option B. There is no option C. There is nothing in between. No third way. We talk about heaven and hell. Specifically, we talk about hell. Our tendency is to think, well, well, that's just for the really bad people, right? That's for the wicked people. We like that word wicked there because we can kind of hide behind that. We can distance ourselves from that. Wicked people, they deserve hell. That's the right place for, for wicked. That's where they belong. And, and you start thinking about who, who's a wicked person? What does a wicked person look like? Well, like Emperor Palpatine and Sauron and Voldemort and Hannibal Lecter and Cruella de Vil, the Joker, those are wicked people. But, but like real life people, people that I know, and they're not wicked. I mean, they do some, they don't do the greatest things. Sometimes they're a little bit mean, but they're not wicked, right? They're just kind of in between. They don't deserve hell. The word used here, rasha in the Hebrew, wicked is an okay translation, but, but the meaning is pretty simple. It just means guilty. Guilty. And the flip side, righteous, just means not guilty. So it's, it's a pretty fine line, guilty or not guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of sin. Guilty of breaking God's law. Guilty of deviating from the Lord's perfect design. Malachi 3.18 uses this same word and I think just gives us a, a beautiful distinction here. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So here it is. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. There it is. Who are the wicked? They are those who do not serve God. They serve themselves. They've made themselves God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go my own way. Sometimes that looks like the things that God wants me to do, and sometimes it doesn't. But I am the captain of my own destiny. I go my way. They're guilty. Guilty of abandoning, worshiping, worshiping themselves rather than their creator. It's not a small path. It's not this narrow thing, only a few of the most vile, the most hideous, wicked people that will go there. No, Jesus says, Matthew 17, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Think about that. That's, that's crushing. Not few. Many. You don't have to stop and think, like, I wonder if I know anyone who is going to go to hell. I wonder if I've met someone who's on that path. No, there are many. The vast majority of the people that we bump into from our day to day are on that path headed toward destruction. And if we're honest, guilty describes all of us. We're all self-serving naturally rather than God-serving. We had a couple of brand new babies born this week. Guess what? Babies are the most self-serving little creatures on this world screaming, give me that food, right? I mean, that thing would tear your arms off for a bottle if it could. And that doesn't go away. We just continue to 
grow with ourselves at the center of our own universe. God, you serve me like everyone else ought to. Left to our own devices, we are all on the path of the wicked. Leads to destruction. Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, not our wicked deeds, our righteous deeds, are like a polluted garment. They're all mixed and polluted by sin. Even my best days, my best minutes are so mixed with sin. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. There's the picture of chaff again. No one walks down that path of the righteous on their own. We just don't. We're wicked. We're guilty. That's why the Psalms are so constant in hitting that note of rejoicing and the forgiveness and the grace of God. Psalm 133 and 4. O Lord, if you would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God were to count our sin against us, who could stand in the judgment? Not one of us. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's forgiveness. The way of the wicked will surely perish. And the only way onto the path of the righteous is by the grace of God. Not by living a perfect life. You're incapable of that. I mean, let's just, let's just start from today. It's too late. Yesterday's already in the books. I'm already guilty. Nothing I can do from here on can change my guilt from yesterday as if I could live today perfectly to begin with. If we're honest, we don't even live up to our own standards of righteousness, never mind God's. No, it's by trusting the Lord. Just like Genesis 15 says of Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't have his own righteousness, but he trusted God and God gave him righteousness as a gift. And Paul uses Abraham as an example as he unpacks the gospel in in Romans 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Get that? All who believe receive the righteousness of God through faith. Why? There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. Because we had no ability to be on that road of the righteous. We had no ability to be on any path than the path that led to our own destruction. And he came to say, here, let me move you. Let me put you on the path of righteousness, not by your own merit, not by anything you could do, but what I have done. Paying the penalty for our sin and giving us his righteousness. It's his grace. It's trusting in Christ. And in that, we're we're taken off this path leading to destruction and, and brought onto the path of blessing. The path of the righteous. Transformed from, from chaff to be blown away in the wind to be planted as a tree beside streams of water, fruitful and green. And then verse 6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This isn't just a, a head knowledge. Know in the Hebrews is a much richer term. Um, it, it speaks of, of intimacy. 
of love and, and cherishing, of, of meaningful personal involvement. The Lord knows. And not just the end of the righteous, but the way of the righteous, the path. Every twist, every turn, every hill, every valley, every stone, puddle, fallen tree across that path, the Lord knows it. He's there. He's working in it. Again, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, if you've repented of your sin and you're walking on that path of righteousness, walking with Him, striving to, to seek Him, to walk in obedience to Him, rest assured the Lord knows your path. He knows it intimately. He's working all things for your good, for your current sanctification and, and forming into holiness, leading toward your ultimate glorification, that great and glorious day when we'll be with Him. Put your roots down deep into that flowing river. Abide in Christ. Find your life. Find your, your confidence, your, your hope, your joy with him. And you will. You will be that tree planted by streams of water. You will bear fruit in season. Your leaf will not wither. And in fact, in everything that comes your way, by the grace of God, you will prosper in sanctification, leading to glorification um, for his glory and our joy. And have the worship team come this morning as we um, put our roots down again. That's what communion is all about. Being reminded again, um, the Lord is my portion. I'm going to feast on him. It's because of his gift that I have what I have uh, as, as one who walks in the grace of God. And so um, we're going to sing and worship together. I want to encourage you. Um, communion is for those who are trusting in Christ. If you don't know which path you're on right now, you're looking at your life and saying, I'm not sure. Um, you maybe just need to sit back for a minute. Or you know, I've not been walking the path of the righteous. I'm walking the path of serving myself. This isn't for you. That's okay. Just let this pass. Um, but don't stay there. Don't stay there. Come to Christ. Trust in Him. Or, as Paul warns, maybe you uh, call, count yourself a, a believer and trust in trusting Christ, but there's some sin in your life that you've just not been willing to repent of that you're holding on to. Um, it would be dangerous for you to partake. Um, partaking communion is saying, I am following Christ. And, and if there's a big part of you that is still walking in rebellion to Christ, you need to deal with that. But that's not at all to say that sinners should not come. Um, sinners ought to come. Sinners in repentance are welcomed to come um, to partake of communion. It's this declaration that I am a sinner, repentant, saved by the blood of Christ, finding my hope and my joy and my life 